there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons why uh, I've led the life that I've led and have done the things that I've done. It's a huge story. This is the We the People Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. There is no better feeling than knowing your family always has access to clean, safe drinking water. The CyberTech Ring A10 Atmospheric Water Generator is the answer to your peace of mind. The A10 generates clean, fresh drinking water out of humidity, creating up to 10 liters of drinking water each day. The A10 is environmentally friendly with a small footprint, a solar option for remote location, and eliminates bottled water. 36-month financing is available around $70 a month. Visit mywatersource.net. Use code PATRIOT, which in turn will help the We the People, Our American Story podcast reach more patriots. Cheers to clean drinking water and the CyberTech Ring A10 Atmospheric Water Generator. If you recognize this person's voice or the name, you're not insane because this is the second time that Mr. John Ferguson will be on the podcast. I had him on with Heather Hobbs talking about the crisis on the border which I'm sure shocked you all once you listened to it. And if you haven't listened to that episode yet, please do so. It is very eye-opening. In speaking with Heather, she told me, you need to have John back on because that is only part of his story. So John was gracious enough to agree to come on. And that's what we are going to do today. We are going to listen to John talk about the first part of his story. John, thank you for coming back. Well, thank you for having me back. And it's, it's good to be in front of you and all of your listeners. Well, without giving anything away, really, I went through your Facebook and spoke with Heather and you have had a fascinating life so far. We have only touched the surface, I believe. I want to go way back at the beginning, John. Is that all right? Absolutely. So let's talk about you growing up, okay? What was life like for you growing up? Where did you grow up? What was your family like? Uh, I, I grew up in a little small town called uh, Eureka, Kansas. It's a, a little place out in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. And, and, and I just absolutely, I, I absolutely loved, it was a small town. Everybody knew everybody. And it was, you know, everybody waved at each other when they passed each other on, on the, uh, on the streets, I could I could walk to the swimming pool, and it was just safe. So it was it was a, it was a wonderful place. Did you have siblings? I I do I do I I'm actually the youngest of four. And did you have any military background in your family? Because at a point you joined the Marines. I did. My uh, my my grandfather uh, he was a World War II veteran. Uh, and I absolutely adored that man. Uh, and then my step grandfather on my real grandmother's side, uh, he was one of uh, Merrill's Raiders in World War II, which uh, was a, a, an amphibious raid company, which later on in life, I actually became a descendant 
of one of, of Merrill's Raiders. And then my father, he was in the Navy. Did these men have an influence as to why you joined the Marines? Or was it something you wanted to do growing up? Uh, there, was, there was a lot to that. Uh, they absolutely were an influence in my life because I adored uh, you know, every one of those men. And luckily, my father is still with us today. So, uh, But yeah, I absolutely loved and adored them. And, and it was very nice being able to develop my life trajectory based on their past experiences. And I was kind of a wild child. Um, my, my, my father and mother got into a, a large argument uh, and we never saw arguing from our parents growing up. But uh, when I was in the third grade, my, my mother and father split and that led to the divorce. And, and of course, you know, that, that really affected me uh, quite negatively. And so uh, after that, I, I moved in with my mother and we, we moved it to a, a different location in Kansas. And she ultimately uh, got married to a guy who my father had trained and given a, uh, a career as a machinist. And he became very abusive and he tortured me for six years, uh, physically torturing me for six years. Uh, and that, and I grew very angry. And then finally, uh, one night he had, uh, put my head through the door, uh, our front door of our house. And I was able to, at that point, my mother's called up my, uh, my, my father and said, just come get John. So when I, he did, and, and my, I always look at my father as, you know, the guy in the, the blue suit and the red cape, uh, he, he came and got me that night and then I moved back to Eureka and that's where I finished out my high school year. So when he did that, there was a lot of anger and I was kind of a, a rebellion. So I needed to join the Marine Corps. Why did your mom let this abuse continue? And did your dad know about it? Was she afraid? Uh, I can't really explain why she allowed it to happen. Um, Do you have hurt feelings towards her for that? Or did you forgive her? Yes, there's a, yeah, there was a lot of, uh, there's a lot of ties to that. And later on in my later years, uh, as I am 53 years old, a lot of that stuff has come back to haunt me. Uh, you know, when I, when I go down to, uh, to where she lives, I walk around the property and I see, well, this is where I was whipped with a fishing pole. He, he broke a fishing pole over my, over my ass. Uh, this is the place where, uh, I was whipped with bailing wire. This is the place where I was choked, you know, and so, uh, you know, it's really difficult going down there, uh, because I always see these things, you know? Were you the only one that he hurt or did that apply to your other siblings as well? Or they already left the house or for some reason, were you the scapegoat for everything? I was, I was the target because I was my father's son. My two sisters, uh, they didn't have to deal with that. Uh, and my brother had stayed with my father in Eureka. So uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty, pretty tough times. Did and, your and father know what was going on? He didn't, he didn't know, uh, he had an idea, 
but when he found out that, you know, this stuff was going on, then that's when I was 12-ish years old. Uh, he, he came down and rescued me from that situation. You were 12 years old. You went to move with your dad and you must be so confused, so angry. How did you act out? What were you doing? Uh, I was just a wild child. You know, I had somebody told me, enjoy high school while you can. <laughs> and I enjoyed high school while I could. So I just did all kinds of crazy stuff. I was always the guy that did the wild and crazy dares, not because I was an idiot, just because I wanted to see if it could be done. And when did that idea come into your head that, huh, I think I want to be a crayon eater? <laughs> well, so I was a, uh, I was influenced by my, my brother-in-law, um, you know, he taught me how to hunt and fish and I became a really good tracker. And, and I just thought, man, I can really put this stuff to good use. And then, and then I saw the, the Marines and their dress blues. And I thought, that's what I want to do right there. They look pretty smashing and you thought you might look smashing too. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. I thought I could pull the chicks with that uniform <laughs> on. So, but now I went into the, into the Marine Corps recruiting office and I said, I want the hardest thing you've got. And they said, well, we have recon. I said, I'll take it. And he's like, hey, hold on, hold on. You've got you to gotta work your way up to that. So I said, sign me up. And uh, the day after I graduated high school, the Marine Corps recruiter called me up and said, hey, you want to go to boot camp early? And I said, hell yes. So he, uh, he got me a ticket and I went out to San Diego, California and, and started uh, my new life as a Marine. How was boot camp? It pretty much sucked. <laughs> it's supposed to suck, right? Yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, boot camp was boot camp. It was, it was tough. You know, it was, it was, it was tough. But uh, you know, I sailed right through it. I, I was fine. You what know, happens well, after boot camp? Where do you go? Uh, after boot camp, you know, I had, uh, I had. Uh, certain skills they had uh, offered me uh, an opportunity to go do uh, security forces and so I, I i took the security forces and went to uh, um i i was on uh, attached to the marine corps detachment on board the uss enterprise for a while and then from there i went to first uh, battalion fourth marines and camp horno camp pendleton it was so funny because you know i'm still in touch with my marine corps buddies and they always knew I, I changed a lot as, as, a, as a man, uh, but some things never changed. So there's like, okay, well, this guy's going to have to, these guys are going to do guard duty. These guys are going to do mess duty on the weekends. You know, we're going to have a four-day weekend. So these guys are going to do guard duty. These guys are going to do mess duty. These guys are going to do area beautification. And this guy is going to have to be here because Ferguson's going to get in trouble this weekend. and Somebody's got to go get him. But they always knew, keep Ferguson in the field and don't let him come back to Garrison, which is where you spit shine your shoes and press your camis and, you know, you shave and all this other stuff. Nah, that wasn't, that wasn't me. They needed me in the field to stay. So one thing caught my attention. There are Marines that are in charge of area beautification. Did you say yeah. something about, what is that? 
What does that mean? When you think of the Marines, you don't think of area beautification. You ever get a chance to go to a Marine Corps base, you'll see that they're constantly out there doing um, uh, area beautification, trimming, trimming the bushes and picking up cigarette butts and mowing the lawn. And Is that well, a sought after detail? It's usually like, uh, I got to do this crap this weekend. Why can't Ferguson, I you're on area beautification. <laughs> yeah, I had, I had this one guy. He was, a, he, was a, he was above me in rank. And he stood right here in this one place. And I was like, I don't know, I was probably like 30 yards away. And he goes, hey, Ferguson. I said, yes. He said, hey, come pick up this cigarette butt. And I'm sure I can't say what I, my reply was, but he was a higher rank than I was. And it wasn't really what I was supposed to say. Are we trying to keep this PG-13 at least? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, PG-13. Yeah, because this goes completely past the Okay. Already. Well, I appreciate that. I really do. What kind yeah. of deployments did you have? I did a Westpac. So we went over to the Philippines and we, uh, I was actually awarded a, uh, uh, myself and a couple of my, my good buddies who I'm very good friends with still today, uh, we were awarded uh, uh, some pretty nice honors because we were patrolling for the MPA in the Philippines, which was the New People's Army at that time. And they just kept breaking into Subic Bay and stealing stuff. And they were kind of like the Abu Sayyaf of today, the radicals. And so we were patrolling for them outside the base. And... I stayed up for, I was like six or seven days straight patrolling. I went on every single patrol as point man, because as the point man, you're the, if anybody was going to get shot, I wanted it to be me. Why? Well, it's just a kind of a band of brothers thing. You know, uh, if anybody's going to take a bullet, it needs to be me. I'm the less important one here. You know, everybody else has families or whatever, you know, they need to go home to their families. I'll take the bullet if that happens. And uh, I don't want it to happen. But but myself and my uh, my best friend, JD, uh, we were point and cover man for all of the patrols. And we were, I don't dip tobacco. I think it's repulsive. Me too. Uh, as is cigarettes. But we were sticking coffee grounds and sugar in our mouth. To stay awake to stay awake and uh we have you know point point patrol or the point man and the rear security my uh, platoon commander gave me a break he said hey go back to rear security and take a break so that means i go to the back of the patrol and just make sure nobody comes up from behind it's kind of a relaxation or not a relaxation but it's not as stressful so um we were on this patrol in the, in the jungle, in the middle of the night. And we get these hand signs. It's like halt, freeze, right? So if you get halt, you wait for, if, uh, you know, 30 seconds, and then you take a knee, you point your weapons outboard. And then if nothing happens, then you go into a prone position. Well, we were in a, a prone position because we thought we'd heard something in the jungle. And I remember looking out over my weapon like this and seeing all of this stuff out here. Right. Well, next thing you know, I got smacked in the head and it knocked me for a loop. I didn't realize it, but I, my eyes were seeing this 
but we had gotten up and we had walked another 20 or 30 meters. And I walked too close to the guy in front of me and a branch slipped off of his shoulder and the branch smacked me in the face, but my eyes were seeing what was out in front of me. So, so anyway, that's, you know, uh, that's the kind of stuff that, that, you know, we, we just do in the Marine Corps. I have a question for you. You said you were talking about hand signals, and -hmm. this brought up something in my mind that I'm wondering, and you can tell me. Band of Brothers is like one of my favorite shows ever. And in fact, after Christmas, I was able to get my two teenagers to watch it with me, and we're all crying at the end. But you know, they do all these hand signals during like when they can't talk. Are there set hand signals or is it like a sign language thing or does each person, I mean, how does that work? Cause you oh. know, they're doing all this. And like, yeah. I'm thinking, how in the hell do they know what he's talking about? I think you just said you were going to go to the store and pick up eggs. <laughs> Milk, but you were close. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, no. Uh, so before you go on a Westpac, before you go on naval vessels and you go patrol the world, cause that's what a Westpac is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have about a year and a half of training to prepare because this is where if you're going to get into the fight, you're going to this you're going to do it on a Westpac. Because if something happens around the world, then you're there, right? So, um, so we learn all of these different hand and arm signals. Okay. And so it's a it's a level of communication that that we have. So it's almost like a military sign language, then. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It really okay. Is. Because I thought I wouldn't even know what, I mean, it just looks a mess to me, but I figured they all didn't know what it meant. You are a boy from Kansas. Mm -hmm. What is your first thought or what are some of your first thoughts as you start going to these um, underdeveloped countries? That's, uh, that's great. That's a great question. You know, my father, again, my father is, and my brother were my mentors and I just loved how, you know, the, the whole com- communities all around Kansas really respected my, my brother and my father because they just provided jobs for people. They provided a nice place to work and you just go to work and you get paid and you live. And I wanted to do that on so much of a larger scale. So when I go to these countries all over the world, I see opportunities that they don't have that we have. So I want to take our technology, our capabilities, and I want to create micro ecosystems within these countries so that we can provide jobs to these people. I mean, these people deserve to live just like anybody else. I don't care what color they are. I don't care what religion they are. I don't care about any of that crap every single human being on this planet deserves to live and have the right to prosper and feed their family. And, and that's, and that's what I see when I go overseas is wonderful, beautiful people who just want to do good things. And, and that good thing is to, is to provide a living for their family and just be happy. And as an average American, if we have not been to a country like that, do we understand how bountiful it is in America and how much disparity there is throughout much of the world? 
No, no, because, you know, I really hate these commercials that show these starving kids in Africa. I mean, they got to have them, right? But, you know, the flies crawling on their faces and they're malnourished and, and it's just, it's just disgusting that human beings in 2023 have to live like that, right? Um, you know, and I always tell people, you never fully understand how bad it is until you're there and you smell it. You smell it. Yes, smell it. Is that the sewage, the dirt, the rotting food? It's all of it. You know, there are certain countries in, in the world that I say that you can smell from 30,000 feet. And I don't mean that to be offensive to the country. I just mean that that place stinks. And, you know, there's people that have never even seen a shower. You know, never even seen soap. You know, it's horrible. It's, it's horrible. And it, I take it upon myself to bring our our influence our standards over there and present our standards to them and if they want to do it they do it if they don't they don't you know like i have a i don't know if heather told you but we we have a water machine yes this machine makes water out of humidity it makes it makes clean fresh drinking water out of humidity so with working with the president of sudan of the sovereign council you know, part of my promise to him and to the Sudanese people is to is to help build infrastructure, uh, help build a, a micro economy, a non-government micro economy, something that our U.S. government has nothing to do with. But we develop a bridge between, you know, Kansas or the United States and the Sudan, and we can all work together and we can learn from each other. Right. So that's just an example of the influence that I want to project in other countries. Now, some countries, they just don't want, you know, American influence. That's fine. That's fine. You know, get influence somewhere else. But if you want my influence or our influence, then I'm here to help you. Did you lose anybody while you were in the Marines? And what impact did that have on you? No? We, we lost a, a few people, uh, you know, I was in desert storm. Um, but you know, my, my war was nothing like what we're, what we've 20 seen. year war we had. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I don't, I'm not discrediting our war. It's, it's just that we, ha- we haven't seen anything like what the guys are seeing today. So, uh, we actually, in our unit, we, I think we lost more people when we came back. Yeah. You know, to uh, PTSD and other stuff. What lessons did the Marines teach you, if anything? I hope there's something. Um, what lessons? Uh, oh my gosh, there are so many. So many. Discipline. Obviously discipline. Um. That's a, that's a really good question. It's a really good question. I, there's just so many that, you know, I, I'm in a fog of, of just being to call out specific ones, but integrity hmm. uh, and, and just being a good person, you know, and, and I was actually a, a, a religious lay reader in the Marine really? Yeah. So we have, uh, you know, people designated within the platoons that if anybody has any issues, then, 
if they want to go to a spiritual liaison, then then they could come to me. Uh, and then I would convey that to, you know, to the higher ups and, and this is in boot camp. So, um, but that, I think that's where I really learned that everyone is different and we have to be able to depend on each other to make it through. But, but I've learned camaraderie that, uh, you know, what's that saying? Uh, you know, if you have one, you have none. You know, so if you have a multiple, if you have a, 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 a large group of people, large group of Marines, then you have, a, you know, a large a, a fighting force that that is in sync. Uh, but there are no individuals. There's no I in team. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of stuff that I learned in the Marine Corps. How long were you in the Marines? And did you just leave because your enlistment ran out? I was in a total of, of six years total. Uh, then I went into the army to go fly helicopters. Oh, um, and then I went into the helicopter or in, into the army to go to the warrant program so I could fly helicopters. But then I got into a car accident and broke my back and I broke my back in three places. And so then I was, uh, uh, at that point, that was, that was it for me. So, and from there, uh, I went into uh, deep sea diving. I want to get to that, but first. You mentioned PTS. I find a lot of veterans like me to say PTS. I don't know if you care or not, but there are many that's like, no, don't call it PTSD. It's PTS. But you mentioned PTS. Where does that PTS come from? Because as you were saying that the war when you were in was not the same as the war Mm -hmm. that the last 20 years have been. So you were experiencing something different and the men that you were with were experiencing something different they weren't seeing the violence and the carnage that they are now right or were i guess because we're, we're not there anymore so what was that pts where did it stem from any clues i honestly don't know so i don't understand ptsd okay so uh and, and i when i say i don't understand ptsd that means i i personally don't understand ptsd okay i haven't been through the traumatic experiences like our guys have been over the past 20 years, of course, the cart working, you know, against the cartels and seeing all that stuff, you know, I still don't have PTSD over that. Um, but so I personally do not understand PTSD. I'm the last person on the planet, but I do know that it's a very serious issue. And I do know that our men and women out there that have experienced those atrocities, I know that they need help. So I'm sorry, but I'm the last person to ask about PTSD. That's okay. Did you know anyone who took their own life from PTSD? Um, and did no. you know they were hurting? No, uh, the the guys that I know that that died after uh, were, I would say, it was just mental illness, and I, and I wouldn't get into the specifics as to why. Uh, you know, one guy killed his girlfriend when he got, when he got home and then blew his head off. And, and then, uh, another guy, uh, it just, you know, things happen, but this was, this was, this was known mental illness that we knew these guys had. That was not the the trigger signs that you would call it today. All right. How old are you then when you're done with military service? Uh, About 25. Young. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah. then you go into deep sea diving. 
Yeah. How was that introduced to you? Why were you interested in that? I lived in California for a while and I saw these commercials of these guys with these dive hats, you know, coming up out of the water. And I, and of course I love to dive. I was, I was a uh, scout swimmer. I was uh, what they call a reconnaissance scout swimmer in the Marine Corps. So my job was to swim in and take out the bad guys on the beach, the beach or the piers uh, before the rest of the other company or platoon came in. So everybody would be lined up in Zodiac boats and we would swim in. So we'd swim, you know, five, eight miles, whatever, um, take out the bad guys and then call the rest of the company in. So is that ever scary with rough waves? Are there times when you're, uh, I'm going to drown. I'm not going to make it. We had a lot of experiences where, uh, you know, the, in California, we have what the, you know, six to eight foot breakers where the wave comes up and it breaks and it's called a plunger where it plunges down and that plunge could break your back or your surfboard. And, you know, we would have weapons and our packs and everything. And you're already weighted down. Oh yeah. So we were, we were, we would be tumbled down on the bottom of the, you know, uh, and hitting our head off the sand and oh, it was a mess. Is that petrifying? It is, especially at two o'clock in the morning and there's sharks out there and everything. So, um, a special kind of person, John, it takes a special kind of person. <laughs> it does. It does. But, you know, I, 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 I think that my past life, I was, I was a pirate or something, but uh, you know, I, everybody that knows me knows that I have salt water in my, in my blood. So we would swim, it, we would swim in, do a reconnaissance of the beach and uh, and then we would take, you know, if there were bad guys, we'd have to take them out, whatever. That was the job. And then we would do what we call sugar cookie. And we would dig a, a hole in the sand. And then we'd, sp- we'd splash that sand all over our body. So it camouflaged us. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't see us. You learn rest- something new every day. I did not know that before. Yeah. So the rest of the company would go up and, and take out the objective and then we'd provide rear security. And then when the company would come back and leave, get back in their boats and head out, then we would swim back out and uh, meet up with the boats or we would swim. We would go back with the boats, depending you on the You must mission. have been in great shape. Yeah, we swam five, about five to six miles uh, quite often weekly. Uh, one time we actually swam close to Tijuana, Mexico from San Diego. So Coronado. Yeah. Oh yeah. We're in good shape. What is your objective with this deep sea diving after the military? Was that some type of career? What was that? Yeah. I I went back to school and uh, then got, you know, I got certified to work as a commercial diver and, uh, and then I worked in the, uh, in the oil and gas industry and the Gulf of Mexico what does yeah. that mean, a commercial diver? I have no clue even what that means. Are you fixing yeah, a, hard hat, a hard hat diver, you know, a surface supplied diver. So we have these hats. <laughs> this is this is my map, but it's a it's a hat that looks like a motorcycle helmet. And we go down to the bottom of the ocean and, and we work. We build uh, pipelines and subsea structures, uh, surveys, and it, it was hard work. So this but, is you're diving down. You're not in anything. You're just diving down. Just diving down, yeah. How far down can you go? Uh, there's, you can go down to, you can go down to a thousand feet. How far down uh, did you get? Uh, I didn't, so that diving down to a thousand feet is saturation diving. I never did that. I did at the most, I, I ever did just 
deep diving and, you know, um, mixed gas diving to 200 feet. So I didn't go down that deep, but I, I didn't spend a lot of time diving because I had a lot of near death experiences. While and, diving? Yeah. You know, I'm writing a book. Uh, you know, I've, I've come close to dying uh, multiple times. I know I've died twice. I've actually flatlined and, and I've actually flatlined twice. Um, and I've broken 27 bones in my body. A, a lot of that stuff is from the diving industry. If you can imagine, I'll give you an example. Yes, please do. I um, want to hear one story. So when you're diving and you go to, you're done with your dive, you go up to say 60 feet and you stop and you do a decompression stop. You have to come up very slowly because your lungs can't take it, right? That's correct. Okay. And then, and then the the oxygen in your body, right? So you come up to 60 feet and you hang on your dive hose and you stay at 60 feet for say 10 minutes to decompress. And so when you're hanging there, you have a, on your, on your hat, you have a light that we put on the top. You have to turn that light off because big fish like little lights. So you turn the light off and you hang on your dive hose and, you know, every once in a while, some big fish will come by and just smack you on the side of your body or they'll run into you, you know, not happen often. Right. So you just don't know what it is. So you just have to just hang there. Right. That sounds then, so spooky. And it's zero visibility, meaning like it's two o'clock in the morning. There's just no light. Right. So you'd have no idea what fish it was. You don't know if it was a shark or a dolphin or a grouper or, or anything. Right. So I was diving at one time. I was diving at 111 feet and there was a pipe, a bunch of pipelines out there. These pipelines had been laid there for decades. And our job was to go and cut these pipelines out and try to identify hot lines, hot, you know, lines with product in it. And it's absolute zero visibility. So imagine going into your bathroom and shutting off all your lights and trying to do your hair, right? So uh, you can't turn your light on because there's so much sediment in the water that the sediment, the light refracting off of the sediment confuses your eyes. So you have to shut your light off and shut your eyes and you have to see with your fingers because the light refracting off of the sediment confuses your eyes. So even though you have your eyes open, you can't see with your fingers. Shut your eyes and you can see with your fingers. I was tracking a pipeline and again, 111 feet, zero visibility. And I have a, um, a jetty nozzle. It's a big hose with two uh, hard lines going out each side. And so when you turn the jetting nozzle on the air, it equalizes, right? If you have one side that's shut off, then it becomes a suicide nozzle and you kind of go like that all over the water, right? So it equalizes on two sides. They always tell you, never let go of your lifeline. You that let is go. the jetting nozzle. So I'm jetting a trench. I came up to a crossing. And I, I'm feeling as like, I can't go ahead. I can't go to the left. I can't go to the right. I can't go above it. And I can't go below it. So I had to jet down a five foot deep trench 
to get underneath the pipeline. So I jetted out this trench, I laid on my back and I'm shimmying underneath this pipeline. This pipeline is laying under my on my chest, okay? Zero visibility. And I heard that, or I felt this vibration. And so I hurried up and turned on my free flow, which this little knob right here is the free flow. It allows a lot of water or air to go in my hat. And you do that so that it positively pushes out any sediment because you have a flapper valve right here that allows air to travel in and out. And if you have your air shut off and you just breathe on demand, this flapper valve could get clogged and you can't breathe. So I opened up my free flow and I said, did you guys turn on the jetting nozzle? And they said, no. I said, okay, right as I said that, all of that mud that I had dug collapsed in on top of me. So I was literally buried alive under the mud line with a pipeline sitting on my chest. And so I said, divers buried, divers buried. And they said, okay, all right, we'll, we'll send the standby diver down. I said, no, 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 can't do that. He'll never find me because I had to go in and out and through all of these uh, other pipes. He would, and they would, he would have had to follow my hose. He would have never found me in time. Every time I exhaled, all of that mud would collapse in on my chest. And it just kept making it harder and harder and harder for me to breathe. And so I said, come up 25% on the jetting nozzle. They always say, never let go of your lifeline. They let go, they came up on my jet nozzle and I started being able to move my hand around just a little bit, just a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. And I was starting to pass out. I started seeing you know, stars in my vision because I knew I was passing out. And so I was able to get the jetting nozzle free enough to blow across my chest. And so I was able to take a breath at that point. And so I continued to, to, to move that jetty nozzle around. And finally, after about an hour, I was able to jet my way out of that burial site. But I jetted myself out on the other side. So I had to go back through and re-jet out all of that mud again and make the, make the contour or the, you know, the, the, the concave, whatever it is, uh, make it shallower so that when I you know, slide up underneath the pipeline again, that uh, it wouldn't collapse in on top of me. So how do you go down after that? <laughs> you just got to do it. Can you even explain what it's like to be down in that? Well, your first even, I mean, it's just so right. like another world, like outer space or. It, it is, you know, your first your first, uh, your first thought is to take your hat off. And, and you, you, you wouldn't think that your first thought would be to take your hat off. That's your life. That's your air. Uh, so you have to fight through that. Um, but, you know, there was another time I, I was diving and the guy said, hey, Ferguson, look up. And I looked up and there was a school of hammerheads, you know, swimming over the top of me and my my bubbles were going right up through them but i love it it's, it's a different world it's a different world and and i've had many other you know calls where i could have i could have been been killed 
Now, don't let me discourage people. You know, deep sea diving is is a great career. You know, you're kind of like an astronaut of the ocean. You know, you get to see things that nobody else in the world gets to see. Do you stay on the on the rigs then while you're out there? Yeah, the rigs are the boat. Yeah. What is that like to live on a rig? It's not bad. It's good food, you know. Uh, you know, they have some really good cooks out there, you know, steak day, good stuff. No, it, it, it's it's fine. Uh, you know, as a, as a junior guy moving up the ranks, you know, it's fine. But, you, you know, the my biggest complaint was always the, I always had to have my own cabin as I, you know, elevated into the ranks. Uh, you know, I don't like sharing my cabin with anybody else that snores. But, uh, but other than that, you know, the rigs are clean, uh, for the most part in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, not over around the world, but, uh, but the rigs are clean. They have great cooks out there, great people, a good bunch of guys. It's a great career and it pays very well. What a strange life. Yeah. It's but, very unique. But I, I did that for a while and then I went back to school and then I started, uh, I got into piloting submersible vehicles. Oh, yes. So, I want to hear about that. Yeah, I, I traveled around the world. I've, I've been to uh, over 80 countries now. Um, but, you know, piloting submersible vehicles was wonderful because you're diving in the water and you never get wet. But uh, what were you doing with these submersibles? a lot of the same work, but at deeper depths, you know, um, we do body recoveries, uh, uh, you know, working on oil rigs at deeper, deeper depths, working off the vessels, you know, the pipelines, all the pipes going around the world, it's all laid by us. You know, is this just one person in a submersible or are there two? Uh, if it's a man sub, it's, it's just one person. Um, but then we also have uh, remotely operated vehicles where you're sitting up on the surface and the vehicle mm -hmm. goes in the water. So, um, but yeah, that was, that was wonderful. I, you know, I, I, I was in China, you know, 25 years ago where they hardly even seen Western people, you know, uh, China was great. I, I, you know, Thailand, uh, Singapore, uh, all all over Africa. Uh, it was, it was wonderful. I just loved meeting these people from around the world. How deep can you go with a submersible? As a man sub? Mm -hmm. A man sub is about 2,000, 2,500 feet. What so is not, that like down deep. there that deep? Did you get that deep? Me, not in a man sub, no. Okay. No, you typically wouldn't put a man sub that deep. Okay. Uh, but ROVs, uh, we can go 15, we can go 15, maybe 20,000 feet now. That's scary. A lot of people think that, you know, there's this big blue stuff on this, on the globe, you know, and there's all these fish out there. That's not true. You know, fish need habitat, right? And when you get out into those deeper depths, the fish aren't there. They're going to be along the shores where it's shallower, where they can get a habitat. What is there? There's nothing. There's nothing there. There's no Loch Ness, nothing like that. I've gone, I've gone 30, 45 days diving every single day in, you know, 10,000 feet of water and never even saw a fish. Really? You never saw something that said, and you thought, what was that? No, the only thing I ever saw was a Coke can. Oh, John, you were supposed to say something like, yes, you saw something huge and you never found out what it was. It's just black. It's just nothing. 
It's just nothing. That is really interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, it depends on what part of the world you live in or you're, you're in, but, but yeah, I've gone for days and never have seen any fish at all. Wow. Um, Yeah. I would not have guessed that. When do you start doing your own drones? When did I start? uh, Well, actually it was about the time when Obama took over. Um, You know, you remember the, uh, uh, the, the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico? Of course. Well, uh, Obama had uh, put a moratorium on the deep water drilling. And what people really don't know is that right during the midterms, he, he lifted that moratorium. During that time, he had destroyed thou- hundreds of thousands of jobs, you know, because we couldn't go into deep water drilling. Okay. Um, during the midterms, he lifted the moratorium, but what people don't know is that he put a halt on approving any of the uh, leases. So still people couldn't go out and deep water drill. And he did that for another two years. And that he, we, I think the, the last calculation I saw was 2.5 million jobs. And at that time I had owned my own company with, uh, I think like six submersible vehicles was in, in my inventory. Uh, at that time, I thought, you know what, this is, this is a bunch of crap. I need to get into a, a, you know, a business line that isn't so tied to one product, you know, oil and gas. I need something that I can diversify. And so I had a business partner and I thought, we ought to get into these drone things. And he's like, nah, 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 stupid. So we got into a big argument. We split. And in 2013, uh, I sold my Harley and bought my very first drone. And it was a Chinese drone called DJI. Um, and I started my company from the sale of my Harley. So did you then, get a new Harley? No. Oh. Not yet. So well, then a friend of mine, uh, he got into a really bad car accident and or an accident with a car and almost killed him and so i've just been dragging my feet on on getting another motorcycle but uh but you know i i want to say this and i I don't want this to sound boastful but you know i fostered in the submersible vehicle technology into the united states i was a i was a pioneer not one of the original pioneers but i was a pioneer i was there since you know the nineties, um, you know, and they've been doing submersibles for a while, but until it, it went actually commercial around, uh, the early two thousands. Um, and then I was a, an original pioneer of the, the commercial drones in America. So I've been doing remote system technology for about 30 years now. Right. Uh, but in 2013, sold the Harley, got my drone, started flying doing all kinds of cool stuff. And then I realized that these drones are an absolute disaster. And so I thought I could make them better. You know, I could get a team together. Surely we can make them better than the Chinese. So who were uh, you selling your drones to, John? What were they using them for? I I was a service company at the time. So I was just offering the services. Hmm. So then I, I got investors and I started manufacturing my own drones and that's when we really started the manufacturing is about 2015. So 
Uh, and then now in today's world, uh, you know, we, at the time we had to teach our customers how to, how we could save them money using drones. Well, now in today's world, the, our, our clients will come to us and say, I want this drone. I want to do this. I want, you know, this, 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 and this. And it's, we, we have to do any of the work. We just have to build the drone. Right? Who are your customers? What are they using them for? Uh, our biggest customer right now is Raytheon. Mm, yep. So, so we're building drones, uh, our fixed wing drones for Raytheon, American Electric Power for power line inspections. Uh, the Trump administration had passed a mandate to no longer allow Chinese drones in critical infrastructure. So if anybody that has a DJI drone or a Chinese drone, all of the photos and videos that are being taken and all of the geolocations, those are all being uploaded and sent over to China. So China has the entire world mapped to the centimeter, like our hydroelectric dams, our power distribution, our refineries, um, the pipelines, sewage treatment plants, buildings, infrastructure, all that is mapped from, you know, and it's all that data is over in China now. Uh, so still today, even the Biden administration is currently not saying anything about it. They're not pushing anything, but that mandate is still out there to no longer use the Chinese DJI drones for critical infrastructure. So we're not, we're starting to see a lot of uh, a lot of really great infrastructure organizations come in saying, "Hey, we've got to we got to ground our whole DJI fleet." And so now we have military grade ruggedized unmanned aircraft. So we're starting to get a lot of that. Um, a lot of those inquiries now, but my drones have the ability to do things that other drones in the market don't. And that is the fact that they're ruggedized. Uh, they're very ruggedized. They're like, what does ruggedized mean? What can they do? That means that they're built very industrial. So, uh, my, my influence with the subsea world, you know, in the subsea world, I've managed projects that are $1.2 million a day in cost. And I've seen 50 cent parts drop an entire project for weeks, right? It's kind of like the space shuttle, isn't it? Just the little things and they exploded. Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. So, so I built my drones so that if there's a small malfunction, you can take a piece off and replace it and get back up in the air because there's 1,440 minutes in the day. And when you have a project that costs this much money, Every single second, every single minute has a dollar sign attached to it. So my drones are designed to be easily replaceable and get back up and get in the air and get the job done. So you're selling those to the U.S. military now? No, no, no we're not. Not yet. Okay. Not yet. So how much is the most expensive one? I think I will be shocked and I think most people will be shocked. So give me the number because I I'm sure I'll be flabbergasted. Uh, it depends on how you get it kitted out and what you want to do with the aircraft, but a half a million for, for the, the 14 foot wing aircraft that flies for 18 plus hours, but it flies for 18 plus hours and you can put all kinds of cool stuff on it. Wow. So our, our multi-copters, uh, you know, those are 35, 40,000 bucks. 
They're not, you're not going to get Maya drones at Best Buy. They're not the ones that we're buying on Amazon. No, <laughs> no, no, certainly not. Certainly not. Your customers then right now are corporations? Yes, uh, corporations, uh, private industry, but also countries, uh, you know, like a, a wonderful place, the Sudan. You know, I, I told you I met with the president. And, you know, Sudan has six different borders and Sudan has some of the richest gold in the world. Uh, so as a matter of fact, that's how Russia is, that's part of how Russia is financing their war with uh, Ukraine as they're going in and stealing um, Sudanese gold, right? Um, so there's a lot of countries that are sending people across the border, killing the miners and stealing their gold. So I have a system that nobody else has where we can build infrastructure, we can build a, a digital a virtual wall using our sensors, our combat dogs, our drones, and we can get 100% accountability of people coming in and across an area, whether it's a border or not, right? So if somebody comes across, we can detect them. And then decision makers can make up their decision on how they want to execute that, that issue, right? So is so Sudan using those now? Or will they be uh, yeah, in from them? They're getting ready to. We're, we're getting ready to ship out our, our first few. We talked about this a little bit on the episode that you were on with Heather. Mm -hmm. Why does the U.S. government not want to do that? <laughs> well, uh, the, the U.S. government would love to do that in another country, but not here. Why? Well, because drugs and, you know, fentanyl and human trafficking and child sex trafficking, all that stuff, that's all money in their pockets. They're, they're profiting off of all of that. So that's why they don't want the, the border secure. There's a lot of reasons why, uh, by our, why our government doesn't want to secure the borders. But a lot of it is to destroy the sovereignty of our nation, as, as we all say, uh, to break down our country. Uh, economics, allowing these other people to take, you know, the, the smaller uh, unskilled labor jobs, um, you know, and then the other, the biggest reason is because they're all making money off of it. They're all getting paid off. When you say they, who are they? The government, government officials, city council members, sheriffs, governors, mayors, senators, you know, all of them they all the way up to the big house that big white house that big white house and i i don't care what they say you know i see all these people get up on stage and and talk about how big you know a trouble our country's in and and everybody stands up and claps and says usa 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 but then they all sit back down you know it just makes me sick you know, if you're going to be a patriotic American, you got to stand up for what's right. You know, uh, either either get your ass off the couch and go do something to the best of your ability to help us and others that are out there, whether it's contributing or going down and working with us to do this stuff legally. My old CFO, he, when things were really screwed up, he was he was kind of a you know, he's kind of an angry guy. He said, John. When things are screwed up, look in the mirror. You know, well, you as America 
when things are screwed up, you look in the mirror. Do you trust anyone in the government? No. Absolutely. Do you have friends in the government? Sure. Do you trust them? No. Absolutely not. Anybody out there in Washington, D.C., I'm going I'm to say 90% of those people are paid off. Anybody that just passed this omnibus spending bill for however many trillions of dollars, 4,000-page bill that just passed with people, with, we don't even know what's in it. If they signed off on that, they're treasonous, and they should be treated as if they are treasonous, period. Who allows our government to pass a multi-trillion dollar omnibus spending bill with not even reading what's in it? That is treason. The whole entire government needs to be taken away and put back with new people, new blood, and, and done all over again. I'll say it when nobody else will or when everybody else is thinking it. You know, that's part of that whole thing that we were talking about in the beginning. I do the stuff that nobody else will do, right? Mm-hmm. But this is why I do what I do, because nobody else will do it. I'll go down there. I'll sacrifice my life if I have to. I don't want to. I'm really kind of looking forward to that whole retirement thing someday. You know, I want to sit on a beach and drink funky stuff. <laughs> That's what I want to do, you know, but, but no, I got to go to the gym and, and I got to get in shape and run a six minute mile as a 53 year old man and go down to the border and keep all the bad guys out. Why are we not drilling? Why are we not I drilling? want your opinion on why we are not drilling. I mean, I'm sure you have a plethora of things to add to that because it makes no sense to me. Why are we not drilling? Why are we letting corrupt? It's, it's all corruption. That's, it all goes back to your question. Do you trust anybody in the government? Absolutely not. You know, I mean, there are some there are some people out there that I know that I think are good people, but would I trust them? No. You know, um, well, why do you think there are some people here in America, some American people, I'm not one of them, who agree with that, who fall into that, which is so crazy. It's bad for the environment, so we can't drill. But yet we'll let these corrupt dictators drill for us. The reason why we're not drilling is because people are uneducated. They think that we can flip a switch and within a matter of like Biden said the other day on the on his speech, you know, we're going to need, you know, fossil fuels for 10 more years. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You can't flip a switch and in 10 years be completely, you know, you know, unre unreliant on fossil energy. Right. So or fossil fuels. We are still 50 years at least away from being able to going all green. No matter what we do, we're never going to go all green. We're going to rely on fossil fuels for our whole entire existence. But you have people like AOC and all those other, you know, crazy people uh, on the Hill that are, you know, 5% of the people making 90% of the noise. You know, they're allowing they're allowing these people to try to put this new green new deal through. And so they want to end fossil fuels, but they just don't have the, the, the education to understand how that has to happen. They still don't realize that 
if you make green energy, it still takes fossil fuels to make green energy. Why are we okay with our enemies drilling for us? Because they are selling out our nation. So, you know, okay, so here's, here's a great example. And this will answer that question. Uh, so they passed a, a bill last year. Uh, what was it? Uh, $50 million for gender studies in Pakistan. Isn't that crazy? I know. Okay, in Pakistan, they don't mess around. No, they don't. And they're not going to want to do any gender studies there. You're going to get your head locked there off. Is, there's no reason on earth for anybody to ever even think they need to spend $50 million in Pakistan for gender studies. And what, so and we, what is it? Why is it our business anyway? What do you think? Okay, so what do you think? They, they um, and I've heard this a lot in the past, but, you know, these government officials will pass a bill. They'll send... Pakistan, I, I'm just I'm just making up numbers, but they'll send them $10 million and they'll say, hey, put the other 40 million in my bank account and then they'll distribute that. And then, of course, we all know that a lot of that money that has that goes to these that is, stems from those bills all went through they went to the Ukrainian banks. Interesting. So so, again, you know, it's, it's all it's all corruption. You know, a lot of people around the world for years have said oh, our country is just so corrupt. Well, yeah, it is corrupt. And they're like, we want to come to America. I'm like, really? I think America taught the rest of the world how to be corrupt. Really? Yes, absolutely. The American government, though, not the American people. Oh, no, no, the American government, of course. Uh, yeah, not the American people. Can you educate us? Because I'm sure you know a great deal about this. And I am really naive and I had no clue, probably, I'll be honest, John, I'm really stupid with this until this last year about cobalt mining. I don't know anything about it. Oh, you don't? I do not. You don't? I'm shocked. Really? <laughs> I will get smarter. But uh, but no, I'm sorry. I. Well, you need to look that up because... Okay. With what you do, you will be completely flabbergasted by it because it's the cobalt that they need for a lot of our green energy, for um, the electric cars, for our cell phones. And I, in my head right now, I can't remember because we're 53, John, and things just don't come to us as easily as they once did, where we look for words that we should know and we don't, but You need to look it up because it is shocking that we're so into this green energy, but these mines where these people are getting the cobalt energy, it's Mm -hmm. disgusting and evil and cruel. It's a mass of people in these mines that are getting this cobalt and the conditions are just deplorable. It's disgusting, but nobody says anything about it. And that's really interesting that you don't know a lot about it because that just tells me, and I just found out about it recently, how uneducated we are with how green energy really isn't that green. Well, it sounds like you just put a a little bit more workload on my plate. So thank you. Yeah, sorry, because you will be disgusted. I want to know what you think once you look it up. It is just disgusting and deplorable. That people like Greta Thunberg, you know, she's hopping on planes or whatever and doing all of her and getting, what is it, you know, arrested. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I heard about By the that. police, but nobody, 
it is the weirdest thing, John, once you start doing research in it, I know you, you'll do a deep dive. It's, I, I know you well enough. I don't know you really well, but I know you well enough, but I bet you'll do a deep dive in it. And it's atrocious. It is atrocious what these people are buying for, for just things that we use on a daily basis and nobody is saying anything about it. There's no media, there's nothing. It's well, insanity. And where are these cobalt mines? I don't know. That's where I was trying to remember. You That's know, where my 53-year-old mind went, where was it? Where was it? Where was it? And I can't remember. I should look it up on my phone. It seems like Africa. Probably. Mind. Probably. I think I have heard about the cobalt mines, and I think they are. I think they are in Africa, but I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to say yeah. something and not be correct, but yeah, you know, I, I focus, uh, even though I have a huge international presence and I, I do a lot of stuff internationally, you know, all of my, my work that I do privately is all here in the United States, trying to, trying to protect, you know, what we have, you know, right here in front of us. So we need to start at home first before we can help the rest of the world. We need to help ourselves. Yeah. And I do want to say, uh, that if people, if your listeners do not believe that we are under, a, if they don't believe that we're under attack from China, um, they really need to do a lot of research themselves. Uh, just, in, we have this thing called IDEX, which is like a trade show with all the new advanced military gear. Um, I just, just found out uh, a couple of days ago that uh, IDEX was full of Russians and Chinese. And they arrested 13 Chinese uh, CCP uh, people. Uh, they had hidden themselves inside their equipment during the day. And at night, they got out of their equipment and they were going around taking pictures and collecting data on all of our future advanced military equipment at this show. Um, and I do also want to say that a lot of these Chinese are buying up our fertile farm grounds with Bill Gates and Soros and, and all those vermin. Um, and the idea that is being floated out there now in air quotes uh, is that the Chinese will actually invade in 2024, 2025. Uh, and they're growing these farms or they built their, they're buying all these farms to build grow all this uh, food that will feed their military. And I also want to recall that something we had talked about on our first interview is that China had developed a fentanyl airburst round. Okay. So we all know that fentanyl, if you just, if you just come in the area of fentanyl, it could kill you. And then you touch it and then you're really dead. Right. So, Fentanyl is so lethal that if you put this in this, this airburst round and they airburst this 100 feet over a city, you'll take out blocks and blocks and blocks of people. So we need to remember stuff like that. You know, this sounds so far out there to a lot of people. Of course. You know, do I really believe that China is dumb enough to invade the United States? I don't think so. I don't think so. But you know what? I wouldn't believe half the crap that I've seen in the last two years myself. You know, so it's not it's not outside the realm of possibility. You know, the Chinese, they don't want to 
destroy this country. They, they want the country. They don't, they, they don't want us here. Right. And so, and then you get into the economics of how China and the United States really rely on each other's uh, economies. And if one falls, so does the other. But you also have to remember that what the military men are thinking, or military men and women are thinking, is that the Chinese play the long game. They're not thinking about 50 years from now. They're thinking about 100 years from now. Right? So it's, it's all I'm saying is that people really need to get their ears to the tracks and really start paying attention about what's going on. Because, I mean, they're folding up dollar bills with fentanyl in it and dropping it at gas stations, grocery stores, places like that. So when regular everyday American people open up the dollar bill and say, hey, I found, a, I found five bucks. Well, it's, got, it's laced with fentanyl. And guess what? They die. It's, it's absolutely happening. Have you heard of the National Covenant? I've heard of that. Okay. That is one of my themes this season for the show. And I want to get your opinion on this. So the founding fathers, when researchers go back and look at where they got a lot of their ideas and information from, the great majority of it came from Deuteronomy, which I would advise you to go read Deuteronomy because it will blow your mind if you go into it with that as what you're looking for. And they believed in a national covenant, which is that God will protect us. This is a chosen land, a chosen people, as long as we are doing our part, which is being God-fearing people who follow God's law. Okay, I'm glad you said that. So I'm with you 100%, okay? But are we the chosen people? Are are we following God's law? Well, I don't think we are now. It's a little scary that we don't realize what a place we have here in America and how we've just let, sorry, become a shit show. No, you know, like I had an office in Scotland for six years, right? And when I was over there, they were starting to turn churches thousand plus year old churches into pubs i mean how disrespectful is that but why would they do that it's because religion is gone okay and the same exact thing is happening right here in front of our faces next thing you know one of our churches is going to be a pub next month you know this government this global cabal you know they're trying to get rid of religion they're trying to get rid of the family values they're pushing this transgender stuff and that's that's the way you think that's just the way you think whatever just keep it out of away from me and i don't know if you saw on fox news but they have these transgenders doing striptease dances in front of toddlers that's repulsive that's that is a godless place okay and and those people are pushing god out of this country so are we really following God's law? You, know, you and I are. You know, then you got porn and all this other crap. Religion, I think, is diminishing in this country. How are we following God's law? And how are we going to fix it? How are we going to get back? That's my thing, John, is I think we need to realize that we aren't anymore, that we 
I shouldn't say most people, but there are many Americans who are not fulfilling this covenant. And there will be repercussions if we don't get back on track. Because if we are not doing what we should, then God is not going to fulfill his part. You know, one of your original questions in the beginning of this interview was, what was it like growing up in, in my childhood? And you know what? I'm really sad. Um, I'm really sad that, you know, I look at inner city children um, and, and everything that they didn't get to experience that I got to experience in a small town. You know, Andy Griffith and I Love Lucy walking, you know, walking to the swimming pool, um, you know, everybody knowing each other, you know, apple pie, cherry pie, ice cream. I mean, all of that stuff is just, it was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful first few years of my life. You know, uh, I went to shit after that, but, you know, it, but growing up and getting those first few years of my life is really what set the foundation of who I am. And I'm sad that inner city children or children around the world didn't get to experience that beautiful upbringing that, that I had. Right. But I went to the Methodist church in Eureka and I hated it. You know, I was a kid, you know, I didn't want to go to church, but it set the foundation for me. And there's a church, you know, when my, when my stepdad was, uh, was torturing me, you know, all throughout my, my years, um, living with him, I sought refuge in a place called Tyro Christian Church, and that's where I was saved uh, when I was a very young child. And I would go to that church just to have, I would go two services at, uh, on Wednesday, was it? No, two services on Sunday and one on Wednesday. I, I went to that church to get out of the house because I didn't want to be beaten, you know, and I, I look forward to the day when I can go back to that church and say, hey, look, I'm not a serial killer. You know, and it's all because of you guys, <laughs> you know, so, um, but that is the core of who I am. I'm not an over-religious guy, but I am very religious and very spiritual in, in my core. And I tried to pass that on to my children. And, you know, I told my son, it's like, you know, you better go to church, you know, or, you know, what's good for you. Right. So, um, but my, my, my children were brought up in the same environment as far as going to church and Bible school and all that stuff. Uh, but religion is just, I see the decline and we have to fix it. We just, we, we have to fix it. If we don't fix it, we're done. We're screwed. What are we going to do? Yeah. Well, I'm not going to get too much into it because my listeners can go and check out the episode that you did with Heather about the crisis on the border and what you are trying to do there. But could you maybe one more time, let people know where they can go if they want to donate and help out with that cause, please listen to Heather and John's prior episode. It's all about the border and the great work that they're doing down on the border. Yeah, it's uh, it's, the name of the website is Saxon Unman Joint Training Center. It's S-U-J-T-C. And that is a, uh, there's a link at the bottom where they can go to, to donate. Uh, we have an open book policy. So anytime you want to see the books, you just let me know. We have no problem with sharing 
any um, any of the, the the funding data. So that money will go strictly towards border work. Okay, strictly towards border work. Um, but can I talk? Can I talk about the water machine real quick? Yes, please do. Okay, thank you so much. Um, but we have a, a, a machine. It's a it's a it's an atmospheric water generating machine. Uh, it's mywatersource.net. Uh, this machine it, it operates on regular one ten power, um, or we all, we have a solar. Uh, power generation unit for it as well but it makes 10 liters of water every 24 hours it's about 2500 bucks and we're trying to get the the machines out there in the world because you know if you like look at ohio the water is 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 terrible in ohio right now unfortunately because of that train wreck you look Boy, at those Detroit, people could use that now couldn't they wow they could and, and we're also trying to get those overseas. So these villages out in the middle, in, in Africa uh, with solar power, uh, we can, there's people around the world that just don't get clean drinking water. And this machine will actually make really good, clean drinking water. Uh, so if you could please help us and pass the word, we would love to be able to help. And if you are looking to make some extra money and you wanna become a reseller or a distributor where you have resellers underneath you, uh, we would love to set you up. So go to mywatersource.net and uh, and and help us out. But you know, we're we're trying to get rid of the plastic bottles around the world. You know, it's crazy. I've been to the deepest parts of the ocean, not the Marianas Trench, of course. But um, you know what you see out there are, are plastic bottles and Coke cans. You know, yeah. Never once have I ever seen a straw, by the way. So this whole paper straw crap is just a farce. So you don't buy the paper straw, but the Coke cans <laughs> and the water bottles. Yes. Anytime, anytime I, I get handed a paper straw, uh, for me, I just say like, I don't need that. You don't want the paper straw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They are kind of gross because they get all, it's yeah. Disgusting. It's disgusting. So <laughs> Anyway, but thank you so much for the, the, the nice interview. And, and I want to ask you one thing, John, before we end, you know, I always ask, what does America mean to you? We did that in the previous episode. Instead, my last question for you then would be, what can I, as an average American do to help my country that I love so much? Hmm. That is a wonderful question. I would have to say that what you could do as an average American to help this country is participate. Go to church, spread the gospel to your children and hope and pray that they're listening. Um, become city council members, become the mayor, become the sheriff, run for office, you know, run for higher office, you know, state, you know, and federal, we've got a, the only way that we can get our country back just short of going kinetic. And what that means is fighting. Um, everybody sees that, that fighting is a trajectory that is uh, very achievable, meaning most likely we're going to end up in a fight. 
uh, our own civil war. And don't call me crazy. Well, you can call me crazy, but but it, it can happen. Both sides, they kind of want it right now. Um, but get involved. Get on the school board. Get this communist ideology out of our schools. Get on the boards of hospitals. Get our health care back. You know, we, we can't even go to a doctor anymore in this country and trust what we're doing. My, my daughter is getting ready to give birth to, you know, my second grandbaby. And it is like, that's exciting. Uh, oh my gosh. I mean, God gifts us with children and then he gives us grandchildren. It's like, wow, that's so awesome. But, you know, we have to tell we have to tell our daughter, go give blood before you give birth and make sure that that's the blood that you get back because they're giving blood to people that's, that could be vaccinated, could have the vaccine in it. That's actually happening, right? So we, we don't trust our doctors. We can't trust what they're giving us as medications anymore. You know, so get on the, the hospital boards, city councils, academia, get involved. That's what you can do to make sure that the 12% of the population that's making 90% of the noise, shut them, shut them down. You know, the media, the media is the root of all evil, you know, the mainstream media. And we need to hold these people accountable because they are the, the epicenter of the treason. They're the mouthpiece of the treason. Right. So get involved. Do what you can do. Just do what you can do to to participate in society. We've sat on the couch long enough. We've got so comfortable with our this wonderful country for the past 50 years, you know, and we've been asleep at the wheel. So remember what my CFO said when things are screwed up, look in the mirror. You as America, you look in the mirror. We can't end any better than that, can we? Thank you, John. You are awesome. You are fantastic. The work you are doing is amazing. It is my honor to fight for this country again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com for social media links, patriotic merchandise, and to sign up for the We the People newsletter. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country.